Welcome to Once Every Two Weeks. Did you know that the Federal Reserve removes and destroys about $17 million every two weeks? Tonight, we're going to take a look at how money gets retired, i.e. the process of physically destroying dollars and cents, what and how any of it gets recycled, and the process of making new bills and coins to replace the old in circulation. Now, Mark, this is not going to revisit how you used to try to print money in your garage. You never used to complain about getting free money from me, but whatever. All right, how about we just talk music instead of anything that is potentially incriminating? Once every two weeks is a look back at music from the 90s through a modern lens and a nostalgic twinge. Hosted by two guys who have been friends since high school. Join us, Tom and Mark, as we examine old hits, forgotten favorites, and overlooked gems as we dive into the music that got us through all the fun of those awesomely awkward, angst-filled teenage years, one album at a time. you doing fall has finally set in and uh i am doing quite well how are you sir i am also no longer suffering scorching heat all of the time which i think is what you were getting at it is what i was getting at well today is a i guess fortuitous occasion oh since we are covering the smashing pumpkins this episode it also happens that we are recording this on my nephew billy's birthday john's oldest son named william who I am the only one who calls him Billy because I know that's why John named him that. <laughs> that's awesome. I think most other family members are either too polite or in denial, and all of his younger siblings are constantly confused, and they're like, why do you call him Billy? I'm like, because that's his name. That's awesome. However, as important and cool as that is, it's an even more important anniversary for me. What is that anniversary, Mark? It is the 15th anniversary to the day of when I saw MC Hammer. <laughs> Wait, you saw MC Hammer in the 2000s? Yes, I saw MC Hammer in 2008. That's amazing. Every year in Golden Gate Park, there's a free festival called Hardly Strictly Bluegrass. And for a handful of years, MC Hammer came in to kick the festival off since he is a Bay Area musician. That's awesome. I was out living in the Bay Area, going to school at the time, and I found out that MC Hammer was performing. So I skipped school and got to see MC Hammer perform, which was weird because... As the opener, he's playing in the middle of the day. It's like maybe 11 o'clock in the morning. There were a lot of schools that brought kids in. And so MC Hammer is playing to a lot of school children. He even had a bunch of people that he invited up on stage to dance with him. Not that he was doing much dancing, but he covered all of his hits. All three? <laughs> he did the Adam's Groove. Ooh, nice. He did My Guilty Pleasure tell me have you seen her and he even did his later trying to be hardcore pumps in a bump 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 which i thought was a weird choice for a school children audience and so he's played for about half an hour and done all these things and he's just kind of stood there and singing and not really being very dynamic but he closed it out with can't touch this and as soon as the first beat of the song hits he takes off hammer dancing full with the stage to the right full with the stage back to the left hammer dances back to the middle and is just all out and as soon as like it starts and he starts dancing so when i look at the guy next to me i'm like oh shit it's hammer did he hurt them no oh good 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 the whole show seemed like it was conservation of energy for that one song and that one song was amazing and then i gotta go back to school and everyone was like where were you this morning and i'm like i was watching mc hammer i love it it was a very good moment i'm pretty jealous of you and then i went back to the festival with some friends the next couple of days and saw elvis costello and gorgo bordello and iron and wine and a handful of others and but i think of all of the festivals that's always been my favorite they always have one of the best lineups and unlike every other festival it's a free festival which makes me wonder then why other festivals charge hundreds of dollars for a single day pass hmm. anyway you've been uh, doing anything fun lately I have not. It's been a not-so-fun time for the Crow family with some family stuff. But this week is fall break, and I have taken off a couple days and have action-packed weekend with the kiddo. So ask me when we record in a fortnight, and I will tell you just how great that was. Will do. Oh, 
Um, one other thing, John had a coworker that hit him up and was like, Hey, I've got an extra ticket to go see crows at Red Rocks. Do you want to see County Crows with me? And John's like, yeah. And he wanted me to let you know that dashboard was amazing. Thanks, John. <laughs> anyway, as I mentioned, we are covering the Smashing Pumpkins this episode. And in the nineties, they were a very popular rock band. And so, of course, we're not talking about any of that. Instead, we are covering their 1998 release, Adore. Man, Smashing Pumpkins. I said this about a few bands that we've had on here, but for high school, Tom, Smashing Pumpkins were one of my favorites early in my high school career by far. Mm -hmm. Before we jump in, I do want to say one thing that I really liked about the Pumpkins was when Melancholy came out, my dad, who I had nothing really in common with, as you know, Mark, we didn't share a lot of interests or anything. I kind of liked some of the stuff he liked, like he had Meat Puppets Too High to Die, and that was a kind of fun album, but never really resonated with me like other stuff did. But he got into Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness as well, so it was one of the few albums that we actually bonded over and shared a love for. My mom hated it, of course, because, you know, it was music <laughs> that was decent. <laughs> Poor Karen. Pumpkins were also a huge early teen major influence for me as I was exploring and developing my own tastes. Siamese Dream along with Pearl Jam's Verses were two of the first big rock albums that made an impact. I heard those and they helped pull me out of what had been a country phase and set me on the righteous path of rock. And so <laughs> Siamese Dream remains to this day one of my leading candidates for the greatest rock album of all time. I will second you on that one 100%. So much so that while I recognize Melancholy was the album that really blew the Pumpkins into the stratosphere of rock and roll stardom, and I do love that album, it was also simultaneously kind of a letdown for me. I mean, there's something about it as an album that was different enough from where Siamese Dream had been that I could tell that the band were doing different things and making different noises and experimenting. And being such a young fan, I had very mixed feelings about it. Part of me, I knew that they really couldn't just make Siamese Dream Part 2, but I wouldn't have been mad if they did. And while I still very much enjoy Melancholy, I'd never thought of it as being a masterpiece it's a middle of the catalog album for me hmm, interesting so when a door dropped picking that up and discovering just how big of a leap a door was stylistically for the band i think since i had already come to terms with the fact that they were never going to go back and make another siamese dream it put me in a decent place to process that aspect of it and as i listened to it over and over and over again i was able to appreciate it more for its own merits, and I distinctly remember having a moment where I had the realization that my own expectations for their music didn't matter because I didn't love them for making the music I wanted them to make. I loved them for being musicians who were trying to actually be artists, despite the massive level of success that they had achieved, and I respected the hell out of that. And at that moment, I stopped projecting my own expectations for the band on their music and decided to just go for the ride wherever they wanted wanted to take me musically. And that was a big step that changed how I saw not just the pumpkins, but really all the music that I loved from that moment forward. And now I haven't I haven't loved everything that they've put out. And there's plenty of other times a band I like has put out a new album that I haven't been able to get into, but I don't think there's ever been a moment since when that's happened that I as a fan felt betrayed by a band shifting gears like that. Oh, I wouldn't say I felt betrayed by the Pumpkins ever. I don't think that's a fair assessment. At this time, when this album came out, I think there were a lot of people who did, but looking back on it all, it reminds me of, I don't know if you've ever heard the John Krasinski, Paul Thomas Anderson birthday story. I have not. He brought this up in an interview while he was doing press for A Quiet Place. He says, I'll tell you a big life lesson. Paul was over at my house. I think it was my 30th birthday party, and I had just seen a movie I didn't love. I said to him over a drink, it's not a good movie. And he so sweetly took me aside and said very quietly, don't say that. Don't say that. It's not a good movie. If it wasn't for you, that's fine. But you've got to support the big swing. If you put it out there that a movie's not good, they won't let us make more movies like that. He's defending the value of the artistic experience. He wants to love everything because that's why he got into movie making. And ever since then, I've never said that I hate a movie. 
That sounds like something a director would say. <laughs> yeah. Especially somebody as prolific and wonderful as Paul Thomas Anderson. However, for music, I think there's less of a high bar for entry when compared to making and distributing like a feature film. Yeah. Plus, there's just more of it that we're constantly barraged with. Plus, there's the mind-numbing and soulless pop music that will always be produced by big industry machines that will constantly turn deaf ears to what's truly good. So I don't feel bad about being overly critical of big, crappy pop acts. I know you aren't either. No. But that Paul Thomas Anderson story, it's had a lasting impact as well on how I look, not just at movies, but just how I critique things in general. And I try to be more open to people taking risks and putting themselves out there with their art. And I try to be more aware of how I speak about what I do like and what PTA would say wasn't for me. You know, that's fair. And I'll go ahead and say this album wasn't for me. That's fine. I'll still say that there's quite a few tracks on here that aren't for me either, but they took a big swing and there's still some wonderful hidden gems in here. Well, that's the thing with Billy, though. Billy is always taking big swings. Absolutely. The other thing, as I was looking into this album Mm -hmm. and I went back and read Billy Corgan's live journal. Okay. I became more sympathetic, especially to the turmoil in Billy's life and what was behind these songs. There was a lot. Again, the album is not for me, but I don't just look at the artistic choices he made and the chances he took, Mm -hmm. but also just how raw the subjects are that I didn't realize until I heard it in light of what he'd gone through. Yeah, we will in a minute kind of talk about how things piled up and piled up and piled up in his life. But before that, let's just give the brief history and kind of start at the beginning. Shall we begin like David Copperfield? Billy was born. He grew up. (laughs) Billy was born in Chicago, Illinois. And as a young child, his parents split. And he always had a strained relationship with his father as a result of his father's lifestyle. But he did respect how his father played guitar. Mm -hmm. In school, Billy started growing before the other kids. And by high school, everyone started catching up. So he wasn't bigger and better at sports anymore. He didn't have that advantage. And he started playing guitar himself. But the only guidance he ever got from his father was that he should listen to Jimi Hendrix and Jeff Beck. So for the most part, Billy Corgan is a self-taught guitar. It's kind of a dick move from his dad, but I mean, I guess that's also decent advice. It is, but I mean, I'm not going to say it's his fault that he had a strained relationship with his father. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I get being dissatisfied with Chicago like Billy Corgan was, but I don't understand moving to Florida as your alternative. (laughs) Yeah. Because if there's one thing that's obvious about Billy Corgan is that he's totally a beach guy. (laughs) He is. He's got that tan, (laughs) bronze skin. (laughs) That wavy blonde hair. (laughs) You know, he moved to the same city from whence my mother hails, which is uh, she grew up in St. Petersburg, Florida. I did not know that. It's a weird move, though, to go from... Chicago, which Mm -hmm. I imagine probably has a decent music scene, to St. Petersburg, Florida. But Billy did start a band there Mm -hmm. called The the Mocked. They're not from Boston. You heard that recently that they said that that was voted the worst dialect in uh, all of America. (laughs) Apparently those judges never spent time in Pittsburgh. Ooh. Uh, He was in The Marked. Yes. But like most other things with the word Mark in their name, uh, not much happened with it. So he ditched St. Petersburg and moved back to Chicago, where he, like my illustrious co-host, had a job in his youth at a music store. And he spent time playing guitar in a band called Deep Blue Dream, which also didn't do anything. But one of his fellow members in the band would go on to become the front man for the band Static X. I really want to hear this band because, in my mind, the Venn diagram of Static X and Smashing Pumpkins is just two individual non-overlapping circles. (laughs) I don't even see those circles existing on the same plane. Right? So during that time back in Chicago, Billy met James Eha, who had been playing in a band called Snake Train. Snakes on a Train! They got along and started playing music together as a duo with Billy on bass, James on guitar, and they were backed by a drum machine. During that time period, they met a young woman named Darcy Wurtsky, and legend has it, the first thing she ever said to Billy was, You are full of crap. She didn't say crap, though. I'm trying to tone it down for you, Thomas. Thank you. But somehow after that argument, which was over music, Billy learned she played bass and he got her to join him, James, and the drum machine. Question. 
Yes. Do you think that's the last time Darcy told Billy he was full of crap? Oh, I'm sure it was at least a daily occurrence. Uh, They had a tumultuous relationship. So at one of those early shows of the trio, the owner of the Metro, which is a popular Chicago venue, came out, saw them perform, and agreed to book the band with the stipulation that they lose the drum machine and find an actual factual drummer. Billy had a friend who recommended Jimmy Chamberlain, who at the time had been working as a carpenter. After leaving the prestigious JP and the Cats, (laughs) he'd been drumming for them for a handful of years and got tired of it and decided to put drumming on hold until Billy found him. But before agreeing to anything, Jimmy also wanted to see what the band was about and went to one of those early trio shows. And while he has described what he saw with words like, horrible and atrocious there was still something there that pulled him in and he said the thing i noticed was that not only were the song structures good but billy's voice had a lot of drive to it like he was dying to succeed that's probably the most distinctive thing that continues through the entire history of the pumpkins is billy's voice absolutely it's a very unique voice and it's also probably the most divisive thing about the band people love it or hate it I don't think there's any middle ground when it comes to Billy Corgan's voice. I don't think so either. And there aren't many people who sound like Billy either. No. There's been maybe one or two moments where I've heard something that was new and just like a portion of it. I'm like, kind of catches my ear and I turn my head thinking maybe it is. And then as it goes on, I'm like, oh no, it definitely isn't. The biggest one there for me was Silver Sun Pickups. Okay. I don't know if you've listened much to them, but he is heavily influenced, you can tell, by Billy Corrigan. And the music in general, I think, is influenced by the Pumpkins in the best possible non-obnoxious way I can think of. I enjoy them, but I don't think their drums are nearly as complex because they have drum parts that I feel like I could confidently play. That's probably fair. I don't think I could figure out anything that Jimmy does on drums because that man is a god when it comes to drums. So at this point, the Smashing Pumpkins were a traditional four-piece rock band with two guitars, a bass player, and live drums. Now, did you know that in their name, the word smashing is meant as an adjective and not a verb? I think I remember having that conversation when we were younger about obnoxious people who would make jokes about, like, smashing pumpkins on Halloween. I think I remember you and I actually having that conversation. Maybe not, but it's entirely possible that we did, and it's also entirely possible that I was the annoying person making the comments about (laughs) smashing pumpkins on Halloween. It's entirely possible. I don't know if that's something that I ever really paid much attention to in the early days, but I know it is something that Billy has been lately very active in. And mentioning in interviews, he's been very vocal about that point, trying to set that record straight. Cool. Go, Billy. As a real band now, the Smashing Pumpkins developed a dynamic sound of light and dark, slow and fast, heavy and soft elements, all mixed together that utilized a wide sonic palette and often found themselves in areas of alternative rock closely adjacent to grunge, but always in their own class. I've never considered them to be a grunge band. Nope. I like that description, adjacent. They utilized a lot of distortion and a lot of the heaviness that other grunge bands were doing, but they still had their own sound, their own tones, their own uniqueness to it all. Yeah, they they were always that broad catch-all alternative category. Right. That you love so much. I usually do. And they released their first single in 1990. They recorded their debut album, Gish, in 91 with Butch Vig. Hey! Their success and popularity continued to grow with the release of their next two albums, Siamese Dream and Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. And by the end of 1995, the Smashing Pumpkins were the biggest alternative rock band on the planet. And with that level of success... Unfortunately, the universe has a vicious sense of humor and decided that after all of that good luck, the band was in desperate need of a good swift kick in the balls. Jimmy Chamberlain had been battling drug addiction, but when his dad died, it sent him spiraling more and he became even more dependent on heroin. And back in July of 96, while in New York for a couple of shows at Madison Square Garden, he and their touring keyboard, Jonathan Melvoin, both overdosed. Jonathan died and Jimmy was kicked out of the band. They finished their tour with Matt Walker filling in on drums. Matt was on loan from the band Filter. 
Since that clearly wouldn't be enough blows to the band to make for a good classic tragedy, later that year in December 96, Billy's mother, Martha, passed away from cancer, which was also the same month that Billy filed for divorce from his wife, whom he'd been separated from for the year prior. So your friend overdoses and dies, you lose a band member, your mother dies, and your marriage ends. Yeah, that's probably a pretty safe bet that he wasn't in the highest of points or the very best place for the band to find themselves facing the idea of recording a follow-up to Melancholy. Uh, Not at all. Which, considering its massive success, would have been an incredibly daunting task to face even if they still had a drummer. So what'd they do? What they did was not make another rock album. From the sounds of what we're going to dive into later, it sounds like they brought the drum machine back. Well, they had to do something, and since Jimmy was out of the band, they kind of decided to just take things full circle back to the early days of being Billy, James, and Darcy in a drum machine. And in early 1997, Billy wrote and demoed about 30 new songs, and from the start of that writing, he knew that this was not going to be another typical Pumpkins rock album. In one interview, he said, I think we found a comfortable point where we were open to the idea of making music for more people than just white people from the suburbs. Hey. And in another, he expanded on the idea, saying, I'm not talking to teenagers anymore. I'm talking to everyone. It's a wider dialogue. Hey, feel called out twice there, as probably (laughs) did 95% of their target audience at the time. Yeah, and by the summer of 97, the band had started working with producer Brad Wood at different studios around Chicago to begin tracking the album. And Brad is no slouch. He's worked on albums for bands like Hum, Seam, Red Red Meat, Liz Fair, Veruca Salt, Sunny Day Real Estate, Placebo, Better Than Ezra, Far, Pete Yorn, and Me Without You. However, after about six weeks together, Billy wasn't feeling it. He wasn't crazy about the work that they had been producing at home in Chicago, and he wasn't crazy about the working relationship with Brad. So the band packed up and relocated to Sunset Sound, a studio in Los Angeles. And for the first time in the band's history, Billy decided to produce the band in the studio himself. I found a few interviews of Billy talking about making that producer change, and it came down to him feeling like he and Brad just weren't clicking. wasn't anything specific or personal against Brad or the work he had done, or they just weren't sharing the vision for the record like he and other producers had in the past. In one interview, he said, It was just as good to do it by myself. It's almost harder to explain something. By the time you explain it, you can just do it. It seemed like the easiest way to achieve the results that I was looking for. And considering that he was looking for a drastically different sound from what had been the Pumpkins Rock sound, that's not terribly surprising. Because this was a much different sound and a style than anything the band had done before. Oh, absolutely. And for a band that had built their sound on big guitars and lots of distortion and wave after wave of feedback set against thundering drums, the approach for a door would mostly be sparse quiet songs with foundations on piano and acoustic guitar melodies and then backed by electronic drum beats for an opposition of sounds that Corgan wanted to sound both old-timey and melodic while simultaneously futuristic and ambitious. It's a pretty ambitious undertaking in general. Mm -hmm. So when Billy was talking about the process, he said, I feel like we went in the right direction as far as junking our whole line of thinking about being a rock band and how to be a certain kind of dynamic. We just kind of stripped everything back to its simple core essence. The album is pretty much a folk album at its root. It's just songs built up on top of that. With regard to this change in approach and his own contributions to the album, guitarist James Eha says, I think the main difference about my guitar playing on the record is I just look for parts that fit the songs and aren't necessarily guitar wank kind of stuff. It could be really subtle. Whatever it takes to make the song go to another level. People will probably be surprised that it's less of a rock record than the last couple of records have been. And with all that said, even with the move to L.A., switching producers, it still wasn't a smooth process. A lot of what has been previously recorded was re-recorded, and some of it was re-recorded, only discover that the work done with Brad in Chicago was maybe better than they originally thought. And there's enough of that material that made it into the album that Billy and Brad share production credits. 
it's interesting. I can't put myself in Billy's place, of course, but I'm wondering, did he hear that and think maybe Brad was onto something? Did he think, oh, okay, it was producing more difficult than he thought? I'd, I'd be really interesting to understand a little bit more of that. Yeah, I think it might just be that having had the foundations with the other songs and getting more under his belt, getting a better vision of how the album was shaping up, just realizing that some of those things were more usable than he had originally expected them to be or more in line with where the album was going yeah i don't know but yeah that would be interesting it is it also i think shows a lot about billy corrigan as an artist Mm -hmm. that's pretty bold after you move you say you're having creative differences to go back and accept somebody's work that you had originally dismissed in comparison to your own is a pretty mature move by a musician yeah and i know billy gets a bad rap A lot of people like to criticize Billy Corgan, and he's made it easy at times. He's he kind of has a big ego, but he can usually back it up, in my opinion. Mine, too. That's that's kind of my thing. It's not a bad thing if you have an ego, but you have the musical career and talent that Billy Corgan has. Now, in addition to the drum machines, the band still brought in live drummers and went through enough that at one point James joked that they were starting to feel like Spinal Tap. (laughs) Some of the live drums were used on the album, and a lot of the parts that were recorded live were then just used kind of as a blueprint for what beats to program into the drum machine and then later would replace the live drum parts. And all in all, whether or not they actually play drums on the album, the list of drummers who contributed to Adore includes Matt Walker of Filter, Joey Warnker, who is best known as Beck's drummer, and Matt Cameron of both Soundgarden and Pearl Jam. Nice. Now, despite the astronomical success that the band had previously achieved, they still didn't have the complete freedom and trust to be left alone from the meddling of their label, who were growing concerned about both the difficulties and the rotating personnel, as well as the new sound. And at one point at the label's insistence, Rick Rubin was brought in to produce a couple of tracks. One of them, when finished, the label was pleased enough with because they thought that the album would finally have a sound that could serve close enough to a commercially viable rock single. Now, Billy, on the other hand, expressed no desire to have that song used as a single because it didn't fit the overall vibe of the record. He didn't want to misrepresent what the album was about, but the label didn't care and planned to move forward with it anyway. Uh So Billy did the responsible thing and cut that track from the album altogether. (laughs) Which, you know, is exactly what record labels want their musicians to do. We did just kind of touch on how some people have a negative opinion of Billy Corgan, claim that he's difficult or a jerk, and sometimes I totally get that. But in this case, I think it's still more that Billy had a vision, and it was a very big picture kind of vision. There was an interview that he gave for Irish television where he said, It was tough to walk away from the band sound and approach that I loved so much and what I understood best. But rock as a framework was constricting my writing, and I needed to walk away from it. It's always been our philosophy to embrace a good challenge, but we also felt while making the last album that the whole alternative rock movement was coming to an end, at least in America. We made Melancholy the quintessential Smashing Pumpkins album because we knew we'd move away from that sound and approach. Adore is an anti-rock. It's just a recognition of where the energy is. I think that that's a very astute observation because we've mentioned plenty of times on other episodes for albums that came out around the same time that where music was, was drastically changing. It was, absolutely. Based on this statement, it seems like it's not just about where things were, but also about where things would be going. Which brings us to, do you know why the album is called Adore? Why is it called Adore? They chose the word Adore for the album title as kind of a dual-layered thing. We'll touch on this later, but Billy says that as an album, despite all of the hard things in life that they were facing, the album is about love. And so you have that meaning, Adore, meaning love, but it also works as wordplay for a door. The actual physical thing, a door, being something that you have to open and walk through like a gateway to the future or whatever you need to move through to move forward. And Billy has always been a big fan of wordplay and potentially confusing titles. <laughs> 
it's something where he is frequently known and we'll even touch on further in this episode about how he likes to spell things in non-traditional fashion or give songs titles that seem meaningless but have a kind of stream of conscious connection to him the main one from the pumpkins catalog that comes to mind that covers both of those is their song mayonnaise yeah and when asked about his song naming process he has said say you write a song about a chandelier and the chandelier gives off light and the light is the color red and red reminds you of the color you're not supposed to wear around a bull so you name the song cow (laughs) and that's his process for song names i love it so adore was finished and mixed and mastered and released on june 2nd 1998 it came out to incredibly mixed reviews a lot of the critics actually praised it and it's one of the incredibly rare instances that pitchfork gave a glowing review i think they originally gave it like an 8.1 out of 10 which is astronomical for a pitchfork review and then later when the deluxe release came out they raised that to i think an 8.4 that's high for pitchfork man yeah and i hate to give pitchfork any kind of credit for doing anything good but in this instance they maybe actually got something right i love your love for pitchfork Now, the fan reception wasn't nearly as good. However, the initial sales weren't terrible. Adore charted at number one in Australia, Belgium, France, New Zealand, Norway, and Portugal. It was number two in Canada and the U.S., <laughs> and it was number three in Germany and Italy. It eventually went certified diamond, sold 10 million copies. Okay. That's a lot of copies, man. That is a lot of copies, but considering that Melancholy sold something like 14 million in just the U.S., yeah, it's still kind of... A dud? Yeah, it's definitely a step down from the massive sales they had previously done. Yeah. From Billy Corgan's Live Journal in 2007, Okay, he wrote, The reaction at the time of the album's release, if memory serves me correctly, was overwhelmingly negative. It was a very naive thing to try to do, to make an album that sounded little like the one before, and which spoke very openly about mourning and loss. Darcy, in particular, was very critical at the time of the decision to even call it a Pumpkins album, saying that it really should have been my first solo album. Then I didn't know what to think, because the hopes I placed on the album, mistaken as they were, that the band could be seen in a more open light that had more to do with artistry, were dashed in all the talk of what it didn't sound like and how it was a failure through and through, and secretly yearned that the embrace of it would heal some of the wounds of my mother's death and probably honestly the death of the band as well but none of that worked none of it came true and it has been a circuitous journey ever since it does seem to be the demarcation point of what was and what became and what might be the fact that after 10 years the album has found its warmer place here and there shows that its birth and death and rebirth are very much in line with the themes of the album which is one of hope and taking a chance that the very moment lived properly is ultimately more important than what gets written down later i lived that album quite deeply and maybe that's why i still can't listen to it and i can no longer blame anyone if they don't either and the pun of the title crude as it is serves quite simply and he tells a joke question when is a door not a door answer when it's a jar see bad joke when is an album not an album when it is a door yeah i see it kind of on the same level of river's reaction to turning against pinkerton yep where i just kind of want to like give him a hug and be like it's okay man it is actually a really good album you didn't do anything wrong here it's just people in general who like popular music are idiots well and even among their true fans over the years it hasn't gained the love and respect that pinkerton did the album maybe hasn't reached that cool cult level status but i feel like enough people have come around to give it some validation yeah i still think that he shouldn't beat himself up for no There was a thread on the Smashing Pumpkins Reddit from about five years ago where a Redditor wrote, It just wasn't a very commercial album at the time, and Billy overestimated how much the fan base would stick with the band following such a drastic change in style. Then a few years later, Kid A comes along, and Radiohead was rewarded both commercially and critically for taking such a huge risk, changing the band's sound. Mm -hmm. I still have no idea why Adore was overlooked in that regard. 
And it's really interesting to think of a door in terms of Kid A. Yeah, no, I, I like that comparison. I do too. I hadn't heard a that lot. before, but I think that's great. But I think that also shows the timing of it. It's exactly what other people were saying. If it had been released in, say, 2000 to 2003, mm-hmm. around the same time that Kid A came out, it's where you said Billy wanted to do something because Alternative was ending, at least in the U.S. Right. He was just ahead of his time. Yeah, or it was too big of a shift for people to get on board with at the time because Rock wasn't dead yet. It wasn't. As you were reading that quote, it reminded me of something that Billy mentioned recently. He talked about how he's experienced this really weird phenomenon with fans where people come up to him and they're like, hey, I just wanted to let you know you made this album and it was amazing and I loved it and it saved my life. And then he talks about how they always seem to, for some reason, follow that up by pointing out, but then you made this album and it wasn't as good. (laughs) He's like, it's gotten to the point where I've started responding to fans. Why did you think I needed to know that? (laughs) And that's kind of why I started this episode with that rant that I opened it with, because that was one where, in a sense, it was facing my own rock mortality, right? (laughs) It's like, do I let the pumpkins die? Do I let them be artists? How, as a fan, do I choose to respond to this move? Because there's nothing I can do about it now. Yeah, it's interesting not to take a sharp turn left from our conversation, but I was just curious what other albums came out in 1998 and thinking through. There was still definitely this rock grunge alternative ethos. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff that was lingering, trying to hold on to those coattails. And people weren't letting it go. Let's jump right into the album. Okay, so track one is entitled to sheila do you know who sheila is sheila ain't nobody (laughs) she ain't real it's true there is no sheila she don't exist so the song is not written about a real or a specific person but the lyrics came to billy while riding in their van as he looked out the window at the polish countryside Not only is it the first song on the album, but this was the first song that was recorded for the album, and Billy live-tracked the vocals and acoustic guitar together in just one take. Nice. It's a really soft open for the album, I think. It really is. The moment you hear the opening of the song, you know this is not what we came to expect from the Pumpkins. And with the band's history of dynamic highs and lows and mixing fast with slow, Tushila is a soft, slow song. As an opener, it does set the tone to let you know that it's not going to be rock, but it still doesn't feel necessarily out of place for the band that gave us prior tracks like Space Boy or By June or Stumbling. And their incredible cover of Dancing in the Moonlight. Deep cuts, Mark. But Tushila opens with a light acoustic melody that's plucked while Billy sings softly. And there's an underlying texture that sounds like an oscillated cricket chirp. Then there's some electric strums to complement the chorus that ends with a soft wave of feedback. And once that crashes, there's some extra layers added to the mix under everything else with a very simple drum beat and some sparse keyboard notes to accent the melody and some more sounds that are layered to help convey the feeling of nighttime. Then they throw a wrench into the whole thing as they hit the third verse by dropping the guitars out and carrying the melody along with what sounds like a banjo for a handful of measures. The shift catches your attention, brings you back into the track just in time for that to fade out and seamlessly shift back into that light acoustic guitar and as a whole it sets the tone nicely for the album to come and makes sense as to why billy likes to describe a door with the short oversimplification of calling the album arcane night music lyrically this track feels like a mix of a semi-autobiographical poetic prose like when he sings lately I just can't seem to believe. Discard my friends to change the scenery. It meant the world to hold a bruising faith, but now it's just a matter of grace. Mixed with this pure mountain gibberish. Thank you, Matt Talbot. Sheila rides on a crashing nightingale. Intake eyes leave passing vapor trails with blushing brilliance alive because... Which, all of that is great, but the repeated line of you make me real, you make me real, strong as I feel, you make me real, is what I was left with from this song. Fun fact, this song, along with track 13, Behold the Nightmare, features backing (laughs) vocals from Dennis and Jimmy Flemian of the band The Frogs 
who you may know from the Pumpkins 1994 video, Vuforia, in which there is a whole segment titled Meet the Frogs. Billy played with the frogs on the Lollapalooza side stage. He also produced a Frogs EP. Darcy and James at one point started their own label and put out a Frogs album. And Dennis even filled in on keyboard to finish out the Melancholy Tour after Jonathan's death. So the bands were very close and it was kind of a nice touch to have them on here. Are you a Frogs fan, Mark? Being a time before everything was online, all I ever heard of them was the bits that they had on Vuforia. Okay. And the bits that they had on Vuforia I liked, but I could never find any Frogs albums at CD Warehouse, so I can't honestly say one way or the other. I respect musicians who respect the Frogs, which makes me think I would at least respect the Frogs. Indeed. Song two, Ava Adore. The title is close, but this is not the title track. There is no title track on this album. And I think this is their biggest song from the album. It is. It was their first single. Also probably because it's one of the more up-tempo songs in the album. It's closer to a rock track than most everything else that we're going to cover. And as such, it feels similar to a couple of other songs that the Pumpkins had written and recorded between losing Jimmy and releasing this album that had the electronic edge. However, American audiences are stubborn, unsophisticated brutes and capable of recognizing art and accepting change. So while Ava Dorr reached number one in Iceland, number two in Greece, number five in New Zealand, and the top 20 in Australia, Canada, Ireland, Norway, <laughs> Sweden, and the United Kingdom, in the United States, the song only got up to number 42 on the Billboard Hot 100. Which is interesting, especially considering how much I've heard it on the radio since. Yeah. find it interesting. Number one in Iceland, huh? Mm-hmm. I guess they weren't big in Japan. Well, they're not Alphaville. Mm-hmm. So, just like Sheila from track one, there is no Ava. This is not written about Ava Braun. <laughs> I'm trying really hard not to give you a laugh for that one. I'm not going to lie. The lyrics are very... There's not a lot to really read into it. He's pretty blunt about what it is. Mm -hmm. It's obviously somebody he's in love with, but he's got these weird views of the person, like this juxtaposition. It's you that I adore. You'll always be my whore. You'll be a mother to my child and a child to my heart. We must never be apart. And he goes on to, to have this same juxtaposition uh, when how he talks about where he sees her. He says, In you I see dirty. In you I count stars. In you I feel so pretty. In you I taste God. In you I feel so hungry. In you I crash cars. We must never be apart. It's just... The lyrics are this dark romance. Yeah, and just like the first track with Sheila, there is no actual Ava. No. And so this one, I think Billy has said that it's kind of him, since he's not writing to a specific person, it's just exploring kind of the darker side, kind of to make another Pinkerton connection, kind of like Rivers did with a lot of Pinkerton. Nice, bring it back. I like that bit that you quoted, that second portion of lyrics that you quoted, because I think it's acknowledging kind of that inner turmoil of seeing one person in different ways. Yep. The one other thing that I wanted to kind of touch on with this is how important that the sound and the tone of the album is to the songs to the overall effect and i know at different times during prior reviews we've talked about guitar tone and we've probably done so in a way that just kind of glosses over it as a concept and i still don't want to necessarily have to go too deep into that but in the simplest of terms when talking especially here with the pumpkins about electric guitars like where you usually are with other rock albums tone refers to the end sound that you're hearing made by the guitar as it's being played through pedals and amps and it's not the notes but it's more the mood of it if you will yeah when you hear a guitar and it sounds happy or hard or twangy that's tone and on the record the tone is often dark and somber and it's full of tones that don't play well on sunny afternoons they live at night when it's 3 a.m and you can't sleep and i'm making this point here now because in researching the album i came across a video of billy performing a door acoustic at the viper room while they were still working on the album he did this one-off special acoustic show just to kind of road test the songs he was playing by himself on an acoustic guitar no pedals no effects and so the intone of the album is stripped away to the point where when he started playing the song in the video i was confused because i could have sworn he was trolling the audience and teasing them by playing seven mary three's cumbersome <laughs> which is a song comparison that over the last 25 years I have never thought about when listening to the studio version of Ava Adore. Or anything by the Pumpkins? Right. And in turn, it illustrates the power and the importance of the choices that they made in giving songs the tones and textures that they did to make the tracks hit the right way to have the impact 
that they do. Yeah. Sometimes that combo of the tones and textures for the song is just perfect. Uh, track three. Perfect. Just like my segue. This has a jangly pop sound and overall vibe that feels very much like the band's biggest single, 1979. So much so that when the band made a music video for the track, as it was the album's second single, they made the music video a continuation of the story of the characters from the 1979 music video. Or at least most of them, since one of the five actors from that video was unavailable during production as they were incarcerated at the time. However, Billy was dissatisfied with the end result, mainly because there's portions in the video where it cuts to him lip syncing along with the track while he's sitting on top of a slowly spinning crane. And so it's this nice cityscape behind him for miles off into the distance. And the reason that he dislikes it is because since he's terrified of heights, he doesn't think that he gave a very convincing or solid performance as he couldn't stop shaking in fear. Ooh, there's something discordant about 1979 that just settles wrong deep within who I am as a person. There's something very visceral and this weird, uncomfortable feeling that the song gives me that I cannot explain. I don't know what it is either, but it's always been kind of on the low end of Pumpkins tracks for me. Yeah, I feel like they've got stuff that's so much better. Like for me, if I'm going to look at, oh, the best Pumpkin song, it's going to be something from Siamese Dream. I'm just going to be honest. For some reason, it is their biggest single of all time, which has always baffled me. And I've always kind of seen it like how Personal Jesus was the biggest Depeche Mode song. Yeah, that's weird. Which, they're both songs that I think were definitely not the best in the catalog and weren't even the best on the albums. I will agree with you 100%. This song gives me those same uncomfortable vibes. With the amount of comparison that it gets, that totally is understandable. I mean, lyrically, as somebody who takes their marriage seriously, I can see how now there might be that element to it, since the concept of the words to the song are meant ironically, as nothing in love is ever perfect. Yeah. And it's a concept that Billy wrote about. As his marriage was? It wasn't his own marriage falling apart that inspired the song, but mm. was seeing some other breakups. Ah. And I'm sure... At least initially, I'm sure there's still plenty of overflow that came into it, especially when you look at the first chorus. Lyrically, it says, But please, you know, you're just like me. Next time, I promise we'll be perfect. Perfect strangers down the line. Lovers out of time. Memories unwind. So far, I still know who you are, but now I wonder who I was. There's something there. There's some complexity there about relationships and about growth and... Yeah. I don't know. Those concepts can make people uncomfortable sometimes, I suppose. Yeah, there's just something about the sound, though. I don't even think it gets to the lyrics. I don't think I'm, I don't think my, my visceral reaction is that, is that deep. You haven't even gotten that far. No, it's just the music, the sound, something about the sound. It's just a little, a little too poppy, a little too happy, and your emo heart doesn't like happy. No, it doesn't. But, but the, the, maybe that, maybe it is the words. It's, it's discordant. It doesn't align. But I'm going to dive in and say that there is no good segue for the next song. Track four. Daphne descends. Feel free to tell me that I'm crazy on this, because while the melodies are drastically different, there's something about the beat of this track that, at least to me, feels very similar to Placebo's version of the Kate Bush classic, Running Up That Hill. Oh, I can totally hear that. I had that thought on, like, the fourth or fifth time I listened through this track on, like, day one of reviewing it for this episode. And yeah, I have I have no problem with it. I love that song. It's got a cool vibe. It's a great interpretation of the source material. And I love this song. And I think it has a great vibe of its own that's all centered around that beat that just keeps chugging along throughout the whole song. You know, I don't like being a dad and I never brag about my daughter. We were on our way to school and she said, Daddy, will you play the Running Up the Hill song? But the good one with the boy singer <laughs> talking about <laughs> placebo. I, not that I don't like the Kate Bush one. I like them both. Yeah, but they're both great. It just made me laugh. This one really falls middle of the album for me. I don't love it. I don't hate it. Hmm. Okay. I think it's a good example of marrying those sounds and achieving like what Billy was really going for. Okay. But it's hard to know what was actually in his head once upon a time. And uh, now we're on to track five, once upon a time. Mm-hmm. Musically, this one is light and fairly simple and has a nice dreamy shuffle quality to it. This one makes me sad. Does it? In a sweet way. Okay, do you know why? The, the reference in here, it's obviously 
knowing the context of Billy losing his mom and why mm-hmm. he's writing it. It's sweet. It's him longing for his mom. It's, you know, yeah. writing to a, a boy, writing to his mother, looking for mommy. It's sad. There is a track later on the album called To Martha. We previously mentioned that was Billy's mother's name, just like every hero in the DC universe. However, this track, more so than that one lyrically, seems like it was written about his mother and her passing, because it is. I mean, the last line, Mother, I hope you know that I miss you so. Time has ravaged on my soul to wipe a mother's tears grown cold. Oh. Yeah. Billy has said that there are things in here that he would have liked to have said to his mother, but didn't have the courage to. And the first verse is kind of a call and response him to her and her saying goodbye the second verse is like his final words to her and there's a short bridge and then that final verse is him talking to her after she's gone i haven't really worked out why it's so interesting the continual concept of falling but specifically falling out of sleep instead of falling asleep right Mm -hmm. i don't know it's like falling into reality it's it's sad yeah I think this is a great example of a more raw and straightforward, emotionally charged approach to his lyric writing. I think that as well may have been something else that fans weren't expecting or weren't used to from him. Yeah, it's pretty apparent that the passing of his mother it kind of tears your heart out. Boo. Track six, Tear. Awkward Silence. Tear is a dark and dynamic track that was originally recorded as part of the early sessions in Chicago and was written for the soundtrack of the David Lynch film Lost Highway. However, when he got it, David Lynch wasn't feeling it, so Billy sent him the song I, which David Lynch loved, and if you've seen the Lost Highway film, you know, made that soundtrack, and Tear got demoted or promoted to adore they tried recording it once they set up shop in la but they never got it to a point that felt too different from what they had already done so they decided to keep this first draft they had recorded in chicago Hmm. i don't love it it's another dark brooding moody song yeah so it fits just fine on the album people do like it it makes kind of the bottom of the list for me though okay for what it's worth it's not on the top of mine but i think i would put it higher personally but the fact that you don't love it makes me kind of sad Do you feel crestfallen, Mark? No, not that sad. Okay. Track seven, crestfallen. That's a wonderful word. It really is. Crestfallen was originally meant to be the third single for the album, but never got an official single release, although it did get some radio play nonetheless, but never enough to chart. Now, this one is the first of a handful that is piano-driven, which was kind of surprising because it seems like at seven tracks in, we would have had some heavy piano before now, but apparently not. And while not about this song specifically, it does make me think of something that Billy said in a short documentary that I found about the making of Adore, where he says, I think I'm trying to make peace with a lot of things, one of which is my voice. I don't sing as well as I would like to, and I probably don't spend as much time on it as I would like. My guitar playing has reached a finite point. I don't think I can really take it any further than I have. All that's really left to work on is my piano playing and my singing. And so, here we go. As we said earlier, Billy has a very distinct voice. Trying to compare him to other rock singers of the day would be like comparing Apples and Oranges. Which, Apples and Oranges is song eight and has the distinction of being the very first song that was written for this album. While, as we said earlier, Tushila has the distinction of being the first song recorded for the album. This song started off being called What If, but seeing as most of the lines on the track start off with the words What If, that feels a bit too on the nose for Billy and the Pumpkins. Mm -hmm. So somehow it instead became Apples and Oranges, except which you cannot see if you are listening to us, but if you check our show notes, you will. Instead of using the word and or a traditional ampersand, Billy just goes with a plus sign and they misspell the word oranges as O-R-A-N-J-E-S, which he claims was done out of respect to Pink Floyd, who also has a track that is called Apples and Oranges, spelled correctly. With everything written out nice and normal, and Billy didn't want his Apples and Oranges to overshadow that other track of the same name or to pretend it didn't exist. That was very kind of him. That was. Musically, this track is upbeat and kind of poppy in a similar fashion to Perfect, but still manages to hold on to a bit more of the album's darkness than that prior track. 
It is dark. For me, I would put this as like kind of a middle. I would too. It doesn't hit nearly as hard as the next track, Pug. It's much more purgatory than Pug. Which I do really like Pug. It hits kind of like I. And Billy has described it as a minor key blues death march. Whew. Which I think is a great description. Me too. And it is one of the tracks that Matt Cameron had originally recorded drums for, but those were taken out and replaced by programmed beats. I also really like this one because there's a break just after the three-minute mark where everything but the main guitar line drops out and this looped, spacey, ray gun sound effect thing comes in and becomes like a rhythmic texture in place of the drums. And then it stays in the mix once everything comes back in for the rest of the song and it fades out at the end with the beat and the guitars. And the reason that I really like it, while I'm sure plenty of people find it kind of obnoxious, is that I've always seen it like a pumpkin's audio easter egg since james has been known to have a toy laser gun that he'll use on stage firing next to his guitar pickup so the noise gets processed through his pedals and amps Hmm. and one of the performances on euphoria features him doing so while wearing a laser tag helmet oh that's awesome yeah it's pretty cool pew 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 i uh don't think there's a solid segue into the next track either i don't either track 10 the tale of dusty and pistol pete track 10 is another that's driven by a kind of light acoustic guitar melody and there's some electric bits that are more for texture and atmosphere and on this one billy's vocal performance feels kind of light but with the beat and the tone of those extra guitar bits it somehow simultaneous feels bright and dark at the same time and it's not the first or the last time they achieve that kind of witchcraft on this album all right then yeah Track 11 continues the naming convention of using rando people. Track 11 is called Annie Dog. There's an old song called Amphetamine Annie that some people liken it to. Hmm. According to Billy Corrigan, Annie Dog was one of the first songs where I just sort of wrote a bunch of stuff about the archetype woman who makes love for power. The ramble of it came out and made it into the song, and that was what made the song. Annie Dog is another piano-driven track. It is. While we're talking our piano-driven songs, I do like Annie Dog more than Crestfallen. And Billy seems like he's trying a lot less with his vocal performance on this one than on Crestfallen, which, considering he said that he wanted to work on his vocals, was kind of a shame. Song 12. Shame. I don't know what it is exactly about this track. Maybe it's just how simple and straightforward it is, both musically and lyrically. But I do have kind of a distinct memory of when it first came out, this being one of the songs that jumped out and grabbed me and pulled me in and hooked me. So I was willing to give the other songs in the album as a whole a chance to stand on its own rather than just dismissing it for being so different. Like I said, I don't know exactly what it was about this one, but I just remember this being kind of pivotal in that sense. But of the song, Billy has said, I was feeling really sad one morning. I got up, wrote the song. We went in that day and did it in three hours. What you're hearing is what I felt that day. So maybe it's the emotion of that song and the honesty of what he was feeling and their ability as band to capture it in that moment. Maybe that's what I was responding to. Then again, I could be grossly overthinking it. It could be as simple as I enjoyed how he takes a simple one-syllable word, develops a stutter to give it half a dozen more syllables, (laughs) and uses that for the chorus. Because the chorus on this is simply the word shame, which he sings as sh-sh-sh-sh-sh-sh-shame. There's a lot of moments on this album where to this next track is perfect, disjointed from song to song, but not here because the sequencing of shame into this next track is perfect. Song 13, Behold the Nightmare. And I want to say on this, it is night space mare, not nightmare one word, right? Mm -hmm. It's an interesting, interesting choice. Yeah, that's something that I had noticed for the first time once I started looking at this album as review, and I guess I'd never thought about it before, that it's two separate words. Yeah. So rather than a bad dream, the title suggests that it's about a nocturnal horse. Correct. And I couldn't find anything to suggest the decision-making process for that. However, the beat does plot along in a way that I suppose could be seen as kind of a dark gallop. <laughs> See what you did there? 
the song is primarily driven by the beat and there's a lot of soft textures at play under it all and a light piano down there in the mix so the melody is really just carried by Corgan's voice and I would argue that this is easily his best vocal performance on the album. Even midway through the track when the beat and everything else falls out there's a nice interlude that Billy sings softly with a light plucked guitar melody that lasts about 45 seconds before the beat comes back in and that guitar melody becomes a wall of electronic feedback. The heavy presence of Billy's voice, I think more than anything, is what puts this in my top few favorite songs on the album. So a lot of the album that we've already talked about deals with Billy finding ways to process his mother's death. This one, however, was influenced by his divorce, and he's talked about it being about having a moment of clarity, identifying something's not right, and then figuring out how to proceed. Do you stay in the darkness or move into the light? You ditch that nocturnal horse. Well, which way do you ride it? Does it become a day horse? Speaking of horses, I think we're beating a dead one right now. I didn't even get to say that it was a master of karate and friendship for everyone. So we had this song about divorce. Song 14, we're back to Billy's Morning with his song that's written to his mother for Martha. Based on the title, I don't think we're giving anything away. This is a pretty straightforward piano melody Mm -hmm. driven song. And of all the songs Matt Cameron recorded drums for for this album, this is the only track that was both selected to make the album and that they kept his live drums rather than having them replaced for the program beats. And it's sad. The song is sad or that fact is sad? This song, like the, especially the line like, if you have to go, don't say goodbye. If you have to go, don't you cry. If you have to go, I'll get by. I will follow you and see you on the other side. Oh. I was going to say both. It is a sad song, but it is also kind of sad because they kept the live drums, but by no means is it a drum-heavy song. It's not a complex performance. Matt Cameron is a wonderful and capable drummer, and so for this to be the one song on the album that Matt Cameron plays live drums on, it's... The drums are of no consequence, really. Right. Song 15. Blank Page. This is another piano song, and the first song from the Adore Sessions that Corgan wrote about his divorce. Later, he commented that what he found most odd about the song is that he didn't write any song about that relationship falling apart much sooner in the process of it dissolving. Hmm. So it's all a retrospective? Yeah, they'd spent a whole year separated before filing for the divorce, and it was months after filing that they began working on the album. So yeah, during that entire process, he hadn't bothered writing anything about that relationship failing that does seem kind of odd maybe he was in denial maybe he was just too busy because most of that year that they were separated he was on tour for melancholy and his mother was dying maybe he was just processing yeah who knows you know and that could be part of it too this album is really the themes are dark Mm mm-hmm And like you said, that doesn't typically resonate well with an American audience. At least not one that's expecting a good rock. Alt rock. Yeah. And that was something that since John is the one who turned me on to Pumpkins, he's been a Pumpkins fan as long as I can remember. And he actually saw them touring for Siamese Dream at the Abyss. Oh, dude. What a jerk. But that's one of the things that I know that he's not a big fan of this. And when we saw the Pumpkins together, he wasn't crazy about I. I love that song because I think that song has such a strong vibe to it. But he's like... what really got me into the pumpkins was their early stuff then while lyrically it wasn't always happy because i mean today is this about billy thinking about committing suicide but at least tonally it's bright and kind of shiny and feel good and so a lot of this being the exact opposite musically matching the depressing lyrics was something that a lot of fans didn't buy into right maybe this was also kind of like me recognizing internally what works for me is that shift into that sad hopeless emo mentality i don't know It was a lot to take in and a lot to process when we were just 17. Track 16. 17. This is the longest song on the album at a whopping 17 seconds. Yep. 17 is an instrumental track that is 17 seconds long. Since it's an instrumental, it obviously doesn't have lyrics. But in the liner notes, it was accompanied by the following poem, which oddly is only 10 lines long. It says, 17 seconds of compassion, 17 seconds of peace, 17 seconds to remember love is the energy behind which all is created, 17 seconds to remember all that is good, 17 seconds to forget all your hurt and pain, 17 seconds of faith, 17 seconds to trust you again, 17 seconds of radiance, 17 seconds to send a prayer up, 17 seconds is all you really need. 
Now, given the dark atmosphere of the album and the electronic elements at play with the traditional rock instrumentation, some reviews like to try and find as many ways as they could to compare this to a Cure album or at least to cite Robert's personal aesthetic for playing a major influence on a door, even going so far as to remind everyone to the fact that the second album from The Cure was titled 17 Seconds. Coincidence? I don't know. What do you think, Mark? I love Robert, and I think he was very influential, but I don't... I don't see it. But I think, regardless, this is still, with or without Robert's influence, this is the album that Billy would have made. Yeah. Because it's all so personal, and it's all so about where he was at. And not everything on the album is great. There's a lot about it, and a lot of songs that I do love, but there's still some that aren't for me. Yeah. But I can still respect the incredibly big swings that the band took with Adore. And even more so now, looking back and seeing how it contributed down the line to the sound of what would be the band's next actual rock album, Machina. And I think that the addition of certain Adore elements helped elevate that record to being the great album that it is. Hmm. Uh, you know? I don't. I'm not going to say it's a bad album. There are some songs I will listen to, mm-hmm. but all in all, it's not an album for me. That's fine. I guess your insights via John Krasinski via PTA are resonating with me right now as I'm thinking about this. Okay. That and I think just having a fuller context of where the band and everyone else was at the time of making it helps. It does. It really does. However, considering it was such a turbulent time for both the band and Billy in his personal life, and there is a lot of that at play that was and remains very personal for Billy, he doesn't see that as the point of the album. Yeah. During that interview with Irish TV that we mentioned earlier, he was asked about how all of those elements built up and contributed to everything that was going on and how that influenced things. And Billy replied that focusing on us is kind of missing the point. The album is not about tragedy. The album is not about sadness. The album is about trying to figure out what life is really about and how love is the universal answer. And that's about it. On this particular album, I would like people to walk away feeling that life is really worth living, that love is absolutely the most important thing that one can focus on, and the individual spirit of a person is the biggest asset that you have. Ready for top three? Yes. It's hard for me. Okay. I'm torn, and I think I'm going to kick one of my tops out that I had in. I think I'm going to go with uh, number three is for Martha. Why did you say that name? gets me number two once upon a time Ooh, okay and as cliche as it is number one i'm gonna go with ava adore okay it's the one i listen to most often nice but perfect is so good too okay i'm done i'm done well there is a lot that this album does do well and a lot that it does get right on and it's one that i've had such strong feelings about for such a long time and i've defended the album for so long But in my approach to this review, I did try to make a conscious decision to kind of step back and try to have fresh ears listening through every song and not just default to what I expected to be like my favorite tracks. Okay. Track three is Behold the Nightmare. That's the one I bumped out of my top three at the last minute. Track two is Crestfallen. Okay. And track one for me is Daphne Descends. Okay. Well, that was a little more interesting and insightful than I anticipated. I think I told you when I first listened to this album how much I didn't like it. Right. And I remember it being one back in the day that I got into, but I don't ever remember necessarily listening to it with you. And we listened to a lot of music together. We listened to a lot of pumpkins together, too. Yeah. So I think I kind of knew that it wasn't up there for you, but I don't know if we'd ever really discussed it. I don't either. Next episode, we are doing a special Halloween episode. We are. Talking about A Fire Inside and their album, Black Sails in the Sunset. I think it's pronounced Affy. I don't think most people know they're called A Fire Inside. It's true that A Fire Inside is more commonly known by their initials, AFI. Well, thanks, Mark. This was fun. I'm looking forward to covering Affy. (laughs) So am I. Well, thanks for listening, and we will see you next episode. Be sure to check out our website, onceeverytwoweeks.com, where you can find links to all of our social. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line. Yeah, let us know what you think. What do you think of the pumpkins? Whether Billy's voice just pisses you off, or if you thought The Door is actually a decent album. Be sure to follow us on Instagram. If you would like to sponsor us to go to a concert, reach out to us through Once Every Two Weeks and tell us where you'd like us to go and what you would like us to cover, and we will gladly take all of your money.
once every two weeks is brought to you in part by Burrow Baracho Records and The Geek Lounge. Thank you.